0: Every interaction, let's use communication as an example, because it's easier to to understand this way. Every communication has two parts to it. It has the content, that's what we're communicating about. And then there's the process and that's how we're communicating. We tend to all over focus on the content. I just wanna get the words right. I just wanna get my answer out there the way I need to get it out there. But the process matters much more. If you think about um, like a conversation that you had, let's say six months ago or maybe a year ago, it's possible that you actually forgot that content entirely, somebody you talked to at a party or something, but you probably remember how you felt in that conversation. The process determines how you feel. When your process is healthy, you can communicate about anything without arguing. And when your process is not healthy, you can't communicate about anything without arguing. You probably know people who have so much in common, and yet always seem to find a reason to butt heads and argue with each other. Um, So if we're more process focused, we create a way of communicating that helps us to be more connected and feel more secure in the communication.
1: Welcome. How's it going? Dave here. And Steve here Welcome to this week's podcast This week we cover a topic that's so pervasive So intricate Or intricate and important to the human existence And it's something that relates to everyone Relates to Gave the clue there It's about relationships And how we Communicate to one another And how we Relate to one another Really amazing topic I know we say that Every week But like this week Is so imperative So really this is week deeply we, imperative This week we talked to Dr. Melanie Joy Who was educated in Harvard Did her doctorate Is a phenomenal advocate For how to improve Our communication skills And to break down Some of the systems Of oppression And system oppression Might sound a big word And you're like What this sounds really weird But when, we, when Melanie does get into it, it really makes a lot of sense and really empowers with practical skills that we can do on a day-to-day basis to improve our, our relationships, each of our lives. And she says that none of us are mind readers. None of us, are. maybe some of us listening are, but most of us are not mind readers. So communication is really the core principle which we use to understand one another and understand the needs, the wants and... what one another thinking and we learn about complex geometry and all these various other things in schools but there's so little about learning how to relate to one another and it was a wonderful conversation. Melanie's incredibly articulate she's very graceful and this is just such a practical beautiful conversation I hope you enjoyed as much as we did yeah ladies and gentlemen we give you the wonderful Melanie Joy enjoy Dr. Melanie Joy sorry she's a doctor so yeah thank you enjoy but, but before we dig into carnism, I'd love to talk with you about relationships and relations, because I know that's a topic which, you know, it's it's the core topic which carnism comes out of. And I was thinking of it there, I was just saying to Steve there, like like I've got kind of into history recently, into Irish history. And I was kind of looking at history and kind of going, jeez, we're such you know, beasts like there's so many wars and so much killing one another and so much like you think back to the Vikings, you think back to all these kind of civilizations and you kind of go, okay, relationships and how we relate to one another is just it's so inherent to the human experience. And, you know, nowadays we live in quite advanced societies in certain certain (laughs) ways, you know, technologically they're very advanced, but it all comes back to the basic principles of how we relate to one another is ultimately how we experience life. So, uh, what's the answer to good relationships? No?
0: <laughs> no. Totally. Well, you just you just said it so well. Um, and I mean, it's interesting because my earlier work was on carnism, and of course, my organization Beyond Carnism. This is what we do. You know, largely as we try to w- raise awareness of carnism and, and help transform carnism. But as you point out, carnism is a piece of a whole. And you know, when you really think about this world as you pointed out you know you think about some of the most pressing problems in our own personal lives but also in the world you know uh, war poverty um racism uh sexism Patriarch, climate change you know patriarchy yeah climate change um animal exploitation domestic violence like could go on and on all of these problems, if you think about it, they really do share a common denominator, and the common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's dysfunctional ways of relating between social groups, between individuals, between humans and other animals, um, between humans and the the planet, and you know even. When we're relating to ourselves, we're always relating to ourselves, you know, through our self-talk, through our life choices that we make. Um, So this common denominator of the most, many of the most pressing problems in our world and our lives is relational dysfunction. And the good news is that what this means is that a common solution to these problems is relational literacy or building relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating relational literacy is not the solution to all the world's problems but it's an integral part of any solution and you know when you think about it most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use and yet we don't get a single formal lesson in how to be healthy relational beings you know and which includes of course how to communicate
1: And relational is like almost a different way of rephrasing it because all of us know about relationships because we're in, you know, I'm in a relationship with Steven, I'm in a relationship with, now I'm relating to you, but that word relate is almost like you know, it's slightly different. And I know, sorry to go off a topic, and it's kind of, sorry for interrupting your flow, but this kind of came to mind, was that uh, our brother does non-violent communication. Like he's very into that, which, which the root of that is more like listening and listening to the other person, like seeking to understand before you kind of speak yourself. And he's very much into that. And it's, you know. And it's about rather than communicating from the point of judgment, it's about communicating your own, how you feel. So it's less less pointing the finger and more expressing.
0: Totally, totally. And, you know, there's like relational literacy is based on, you know, a number of principles and and practical tools. And, you know, this obviously includes communication. Communication is the primary way we relate. And you're totally right. It's not about just relationships, but it's about relating. Relating is a verb. And we're always relating.
1: Is relating how we are within the world, like almost how we... How we experience the world is that kind of relating?
0: So, a re, re, when we're relating anytime we're interacting, right? So, if you and every interaction is a relational dynamic, right? You're relating to me right now. You know, every time you communicate, you relate, every time you make a choice. Uh, that's going to impact your future self you know what are you going to eat for dinner tonight how healthy is that going to be or whatever you're relating so that's that's what it is to relate and so you know relationships are really just a series of interactions um if you think about it so how we relate is how we interact and um all of the principles for building healthy relationships for building relational literacy, They rest on this one key formula, and I'll share that formula with you. And this informs, you know, it's similar in nonviolent communication, but not exactly. And the formula is this, a healthy, um, it's the formula for healthy relating. So a healthy interaction or a healthy relationship is one in which we practice integrity, we honor dignity, and this leads to a sense of mutual connection and security. And I'll unpack this for you and like explain what I mean by. Yeah, love
1: I love the I love the sense of formula. I really appreciate yeah. just just so I can reiterate it. So integrity plus dignity, dignity equals, equals functional relationship and security, security equals and security and connection. Sorry.
0: Exactly. Because a lot of times we think about relationships and we have this sort of sense it's a good relationship. It's not a good relationship or we leave a communication and we just feel smaller and we're not really sure why. But when you really think about the formula, you know, and you can break it down, it makes it a lot easier to to feel a sense of empowerment and agency around each of our interactions. Um, So practicing integrity simply means um, practicing the core moral values of compassion or caring and justice or fairness. Like integrity is the integration of these core values and our behaviors. To simplify it even more, when we practice integrity, we basically treat somebody else or ourselves um, the way that we would want to be treated if we were Very in their position. We treat them with respect. I like
1: that. That's a nice way. So it's, it's almost like the simple principle of treat others as you want to be treated.
0: And basically, that's the basis. basically, that's yes. When we honor dignity, what this means is that we, your sense of dignity is your sense of inherent or intrinsic worth. When you feel a sense of dignity, that means you, you realize that you are no less worthy than anyone else on this planet of being treated with respect. So when we honor somebody's dignity, we don't perceive them, perceive them as less than in any way. And we treat them accordingly.
1: Dignity is such a key thing, because now in our kind of hierarchical society, our judgment based or extremely comparative modern day culture, dignity is something that's so missing so often. The the word I just wrote down there was power hungry people, because there seems to be so much competition, as you said, and dignity doesn't. Comparison. And this, that, that dignity is missing so often.
0: Totally. And what happens is that we might believe, like we, well, let me back up. When we practice integrity and honor dignity, this helps us to feel more connected with one another and more secure in that interaction or in that relationship, right? So, and and of course, the formula, like most things in life, it's not either or it exists on a spectrum. It's not like an interaction is healthy or unhealthy or a relationship is healthy or unhealthy. It's more or less healthy. So I talk about interactions or relationships as actually being more or less relational or non-relational. So a non-relational interaction is one in which we violate integrity and harm dignity. And this leads us to feel disconnected and insecure. Or less secure.
1: So an example of this might be a relationship where there's no trust, so there's no moral integrity, and there, therefore there's no respect. So I don't feel secure to be vulnerable and have an open conversation and totally. properly connect with so someone. So the whole conversation is so based on non, small talk. We talk. So it's non-relatable. The yeah, it's I would call it non-relational,
0: right? A non-relational, yeah, non-relational dynamic yeah. or a non-relational interaction. I mean, just think about like in your own in your own experience, right? Um, or anybody listening, just think about your own experience. If you think about a relationship in your life that you would consider a really good relationship, chances are you trust that that other person is going to treat you with respect. They're going to see you as being fundamentally worthy. You know, you have a right to exist and be treated with respect on this planet, and you probably feel connected to them and secure in their presence. Think about a relationship, you know, with somebody that you think is not a great relationship. Maybe it's somebody you've never even met before, like an online troll who's posting comments on your YouTube channel or something chances are you recognize they're violating their integrity. They're not practicing compassion and justice toward you. They're harming your dignity. They're not perceiving you as having fundamental worth as a being of being treated with respect and you'd feel disconnected from them and insecure in their presence. And we can apply this formula to everything. That's the nice thing about it. Everything, to our communication, to how we relate to other animals, to how we relate to the environment, to how we relate to ourselves. So when you're in an interaction and you don't feel connected or secure, you can pause and ask yourself, you know, do I feel like I'm I'm being treated with respect here? Or, you know, ask yourself if you're treating the other person with respect in the in the interaction.
1: I really appreciate this. And can I just roll back to that that the, the term integrity because I remember when I was maybe I was 17, I remember Uh, dad caught me. I was trying to, I was climbing up. We we used to live on the, me and Dave used to sleep up on the first floor of our house. And I remember one night I, I was out partying and I came back and I remember I was trying to, uh, you were climbing in, in invite, the invite a lady Up to my bedroom uh, Up via the roof You know it wasn't And I had some <laughs> alcohol At the time too So I probably wasn't It wasn't the safest project uh, <laughs> But I got I, I was found out To be doing it And my dad caught me and, uh, and mom caught me And you know There was a bit of consternation But the next day I remember dad gave me The book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, And I was like Ah, oh, what do I have to read this, Dad? Oh my God, this is like a textbook. And I remember reading it and reading, you know, the topic of but integrity. But it took you about five years to read it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but you know, I, I got through it. <laughs> but the topic of integrity, at least my basic understanding was, it was like that you actually did what you said you did. That it was kind of almost like a sense of a spine of Your character. Moral that it was a sense of a moral compass. A sense of like honesty almost and integrity was linked to actually doing what you said you do well look is at that, the root of the word integrity integral like central of core of you know that that's is how this I this a, a correct understanding or am i
0: totally it's a great understanding and i remember reading that book many years ago as well and it was really mind-blowing for me as well at the time i thought oh another book on how to like you know get your life together yeah, do yeah. a better job in school be more productive like, wow these are great principles you know yeah. to, to look by and absolutely in Integration, you know, is in integrity, it shares a root with integration, you know, and and it is also reflective of like integrating your, your core moral values and your practices. And I also want to say that I don't mean to be suggesting any kind of like moral perfectionism with this formula, because it's really important for us, I think, to recognize, especially for conscientious people, probably a lot of people who listen to your podcast who are really interested in becoming their better selves, you know, and being healthier physically and emotionally, relationally. Um, they are probably a lot of very conscientious people as well, and it's easy to get caught up in perfectionism and then to think like, I've got to apply this formula or to think about all the ways that we don't apply the formula in our Minute to minute lives, which we all don't. And I think it's very important to recognize that we've we've been born into a profoundly, a a deeply relationally dysfunctional world. We've inherited a mess um, and all of us, you know, have to do the best we can to make choices in a world that's very messy and very complicated. And these are choices that would be quite different, you know, than we would make in a perfect world. So or in an ideal world, you know, I think we, I always think of it as though we're sort of still living in the the relational dark ages um, given the level of relational literacy, right. That that we have collectively. And I talked to, for example, vegans who are just, you know, struggling terribly because they have to, Feed their rescued cats meat because their cats are too sick to eat a vegan diet. And I'm saying, look, you know, we all have to live with a lot of contradictions in the messy world that we've inherited. In an ideal world, you wouldn't have rescued cats probably, and you wouldn't be having to worry about feeding anybody meat.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how does so the question that comes to my mind is so we do live in, as you say, a, a messed up world, and there's so many contradictions. And like, it does feel so like you know, backward in a sense with so much wars and I look at politics nowadays and I look at leaders and I look at how much strife and whatever. And I think, how do we turn this around? Like, how do we, like, where's the root of these problems in terms of relational, like, because at the root of it, it is really relationships and how we relate so to it's one another. Like so I'm so asking so like dis- a huge problem, like huge question, like just like how do we fix the world? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> like that kind of question, like using that relationships as the tool. <laughs> just like a tiny question. So what's the answer, <laughs> Melanie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there' no pressure.
1: Um, <laughs> no, no, at all. No expectation here.
0: Well, I mean, the sort of the, the beauty of the the beauty of relational literacy is that um, the more you practice it, the more you know. Y- you can practice it on one level and expands into other levels. It applies to every dimension of our lives, right? So, when you build relational literacy. You know, just in your own personal life, let's say you're struggling with your, you know, your partner, your intimate relationship, you're having you're having trouble communicating effectively. You keep missing each other and butting heads or whatever. Yeah. And you gotcha. decide. I got to get get myself together here. And you say, okay, I'm going to learn how I'm going to learn the principles and tools of effective communication because it's not rocket science. It's out there. There's plenty of information on this. I've written a book, you know, it's a one-stop guide to building relational literacy. And there are great books out there on any aspect of it that people want to learn, like effective communication. When you improve your relationship with your partner So, so it's a skill. Mm -hmm. Sorry,
1: I was just going to say. So, it's very much a skill that we can all learn. Like, it's not. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. It is not rocket science. And Mm. that's part of the beauty of it, right? We can all learn. It's, it's very practical. I mean, it's not simple, right? Because you've got to be willing to do the work. You've got to be willing to self-reflect and you've got to be willing to, you know, be vulnerable and take risks and, you know, all the things that you guys are probably already aware of. Um, but nevertheless, you could do it at your own pace. And when you build relational literacy in one area of your life, it's going to spill out into other areas of your life. Because when you learn how, for example, to be a self-observer, you know, to start building your own awareness, when you learn how to be more tuned into and responsive to the needs of somebody else in your life, those are skills. And that's emotional growth that you will take with you into every single one of your interactions. Um, So, you know, as I said, this is not the solution, but it's a, it is a, a fundamental part of the solution. You know, it's When often, when we think about the big problems in the world, we can really feel overwhelmed. Like we have to sort of take them on one at a time. We've got to fix climate change. We've got to fix animal exploitation. We've got patriarchy over here. But when we recognize that, like, they really do share a common denominator, and the more each one of us can become more relationally mature, you know, the more we contribute to the greater good and just the better our lives get.
1: I thought that was amazing. How do so, I become like, re- like I thought mature. that was like on such a big, broad yeah. question. David gave you a mammoth question there. I thought it was very wise how that, you know, it's often said if we change our own perspective on the world, we change the world. Because it's often, you know, kind of hypothesized that we all live independently in our own little versions of the world because we all experience it through our own conditions. So I thought that was very good that if we can all change how we relate to the world through, you know, the formula you've recommended there, we're all, in essence, taking more responsibility and improving the world in a And way. so say, say for example, Melanie, so I'm, I'm totally into this, sounds brilliant, great, I want to become emotionally or relationally mature. Literal, literal. I love the word. Literal, literal and mature. No, I want to go beyond literal, I want to become mature in it. So, like, like from what you said there self-awareness sounds like a really good one so it's like becoming more self-aware of my own how i react to stimulus and then also with other people my levels of compassion and empathy with other people those were two two things absolutely
0: i'll I'll give you a couple of examples of like i mean there's so many tools i'll I'll give you a couple of examples but i want to first say that that it's, it's really important that we, we do work on ourselves because we bring ourselves to everything that we do. And it's also important that we work on the world at the same time, because it can be very easy to become self-focused or sort of focus on your own sort of like nuclear unit and think, okay, this is where the work needs to be. And that's obviously an important place to do the work. And it's also important in my opinion, for people who feel compelled particularly to bring your energy and your skills to the bigger picture and the greater good and get involved and help on a a more meta level, help organizations that are doing the work to really try to halt climate change and animal exploitation and, and change the world on a more meta level. We can talk about that a little bit later, but in answer to your question, what is a tool? I think that's what you're asking. Or like, what, what does this look like? And there, there are lots of tools. My In my book, Getting Relationships Right, it, it, I, it is a one-stop guide to building relational literacy. I put in there everything I felt was like critical to really understand. Um, and then people who want more information can look further. Most of it, or or all of it, I would say, centers on the formula and also on this idea of becoming process-centered or process-focused. Every interaction, let's use communication as an example, because it's easier to to understand this way. Every communication has two parts to it. It has the content. That's what we're communicating about. And then there's the process. And that's how we're communicating. We tend to all over focus on the content. I just want to get the words right. I just want to get my answer out there the way I need to get it out there. But the process matters much more. If you think about um, like a conversation that you had, let's say six months ago or maybe a year ago, it's possible that you actually forgot that content entirely, somebody you talked to at a party or something. But you probably remember how you felt in that conversation. The process determines how you feel. When your process is healthy, you can communicate about anything without arguing. And when your process is not healthy, you can't communicate about anything without arguing. You probably know people who have so much in common and yet always seem to find a reason to butt heads and argue with each other. Um, So if we're more process focused, we create a way of communicating that helps us to be more connected and feel more secure in that communication.
1: I love this. Like, is that, like what you're saying is so true. Like once once you can find that point of ease or comfort literally with someone, you can talk about anything without butting heads. And that it is in essence that the context or the process is more important than the actual content. And it's, it's almost like the, the acknowledgement of the nonverbal communication being more important than the actual the, the words that we're saying
0: it's the nonverbal communication and it's it's the it's the attitude it's the goal right when your process is healthy your goal your objective for the communication the interaction, the communication, is um, to its mutual understanding. Right? The only reason we communicate anyway is because we're not mind readers. Even though a lot of us think we are and act like we are, um, we're not mind readers. So we need to communicate in order to help the other person understand our thoughts and our feelings and our needs, and to, for us to understand their thoughts and feelings and needs. That that's why we communicate. When our process is healthy, our goal is mutual understanding. When it's not healthy, our goal can be a lot of things. For example, our goal can be to be right, which means to make the other person wrong, or to win, which means to make the other person lose, or to assert our power and our dominance. Like There are so many things. And and so when we learn how to have a, a healthy process, and of course, a healthy process reflects integrity and honors dignity, Um, then this helps us to feel more secure and connected. And when our goal is mutual understanding, we can keep coming back to this point. So if you're in a communication and you start to feel stressed and, you know, something is off here, you can pause and and ask yourself, you know, what's your agenda? Are you feeling like you have to be right in this, in this communication? Um, Do you feel like the other person is somehow shaming you? When you don't honor somebody's dignity, you're essentially shaming them. And that's, You know, that's so central to a dysfunctional process where people disconnect and stop listening to each other. Now, effective communication is built on a lot more than just a healthy process, but this is the foundation of it. And the beauty of effective communication and relational literacy, as I said before, is if you want to learn it, you can. I mean, anybody who really is committed can, can learn it. And it's a game changer. When you build relational literacy, your world transforms in such profound ways and your impact on the world transforms as well. It's it's like the difference between being able to read and write and not going through the world.
1: Wow. Like, I I think that you just you just like what a beautiful awareness for me anyway just how you described it was we are not mind readers we communicate to understand what the other person is trying like what they're thinking feeling and and needing or whatever and it's you know the way communication is just such a part of day, all of our days that even that, oh yeah, we communicate to understand what the other person's version of the world is like and what they're going through. You know? I, I thought it was like, it's only as I start to become a little bit older, I start realising that growing up in a very male, we went, we're one of four boys and we went to all boys school. And so much of my communication was to get a certain outcome. It wasn't focused on process. It was sp- focused on result. And now I'm married and have three children and my wife's a, a psychologist and I'm Slowly Very slowly Learning (laughs) that It's not about the outcome It's about the process And about the process Is as you said It's only when you said it The process is more important I'm like Yeah that's what I'm working on I'm only starting to realise that (laughs) I'm in kindergarten
0: well, when we when we name these things, it gives us the ability to choose how we how we use them and how we relate to them. You know, for so many people, for, for most of us, like I said, you know, most of us, we never learn this. We're never taught this. What we learn, you know, about how to relate to others, which includes how to communicate to others. We we learn from our parents, which I mean, I don't know about you, but most of us have parents who weren't perfect role models because they came from parents who who didn't know this and what you know, we don't learn from our parents, we learn from Hollywood, and we learn from you know our elected leaders and who are not always the most relationally literate people, and so on and so forth. So um, it's really for many of us, the process of learning to build relational literacy, it's, it's really a new process. Um, and, and like I said, you know, we can learn it. And it's a question of like, you know, once you connect the dots, once you just actually have a name for something, even being able to name process versus content, dignity, honoring dignity versus shaming, you know, and really understanding. Uh, and we can talk about this if you like, because I think it's, it, it's, it's, Probably important, actually, to understanding a healthy process. But when we recognize shaming behaviors, you know, for what they are and how they come out and get expressed, we're in a much better position to protect ourselves from having our own dignity harmed or feeling that our dignity is harmed and to protect others from us doing this to them. Because, as you said, we're like we're on autopilot. You know, we're just we're communicating so unconsciously because we we are communicating the way we've always been communicating. We've never been taught how important it is to pause and really to pause as we're communicating, to stop and take a breath and try to observe ourselves and notice, you know, what am I feeling right now in this communication? Do I notice I'm starting to feel resistant? I'm starting to feel tense. I'm starting to feel smaller. I'm starting to feel dominant. You know, how does this person seem like they might be feeling? Have I paused in this communication and actually said, how are you? Am I thinking? How are you? You know, most of us are so on autopilot that we just keep reproducing the problems that we inherited when we were a lot younger, but we can change that.
1: Wow. It makes me want to pause now and be a lot more reflective. However, (laughs) I'm filling the air yet again. It makes me actually think about, I remember going to this, place called School for Designing a Society in Chicago. And there was this fellow who'd written these books, and it was all about is language speaking you or are you speaking language? And it was about Mm. this same kind of concept that you're talking about there, that sense of that pause, that sense of reflecting, that sense of being more deliberate in our use of language as opposed to so often conversation. And as weird as it sounds, is like words are often speaking us in a way that we just, someone says, how are you? And before you know it, you've said fine. And before you know it, you're three sentences down the word and you don't even know what you said. You know that way that it's, as you said, autopilot. And it's kind of this, sent, this need for the space of reflection. And what are what are, what are some, of the, so like what I'm thinking about here is like, oh crap, you know that expression, like two ears, one mouth, like, and I talk <sighs> more than I listen probably. And it's like, I imagine listening is a, is a really good skill, like an actually listening to understand the other person and empathize with the other person as opposed to, you know, and we've all heard this, but like putting it into practice is quite hard, you know. of course it is and this is
0: where we have to be really compassionate toward ourselves this is where we have to like apply the formula to ourselves you know and that might be the the hardest thing of all for many people is to to remember that you know we're always relating to ourselves and we can relate to ourselves in a way that causes us to feel disconnected internally and insecure with ourselves distrust ourselves um so it's i think it's you know, when we recognize that a healthy process is fundamentally, um, you know, bringing this into listening. You know, what does good listening look like with a healthy process? Good listening looks like, you know, presence. Essentially, if you talk to, you know, people who are promoting consciousness and and Buddhism you know, they're they're all saying the same thing, Um, not just Buddhism, but, but, you know, a lot of Buddhist teachings are centered around this too, like being more mindful and being more present and showing up. And when you're listening effectively, you're here now, you're not there then you're showing up to the communication and you can feel it when somebody is um, when you're communicating with somebody who's really present to you, who's really witnessing you and, um, not judging you. And this is key. An effective listener is somebody who is not in a place of judgment. They're listening to you and doing their best to be present to what you're saying and to stay empathically connected with you, as long as that feels safe for them to do. It's not always appropriate to stay empathically connected with somebody. You need to feel like- So is is
1: judging almost undermining someone's dignity? Like if I'm standing here, sitting here and I'm hearing you talk and I'm judging you, I'm kind of almost thinking of myself as better than you. So I'm kind of undermining your dignity in a weird way.
0: You're absolutely, you're so right, like so spot on. And and this is really, I think, very important to appreciate the the two emotions that are probably the most disconnecting of emotions. They're two sides of what I call the non-relational coin, shame and contempt. And, you know, when we are relating in a way that is violating the formula, essentially, whether that's listening with judgment or communicating with judgment, you know, when we are relating in a way that is in violation of the formula, we are um, probably relating to somebody else in a way that shames them or relating to ourselves in a way that shames us. And let me unpack this a little bit. So it's more clear. So shame is not the same thing as guilt. Like we often like conflate these terms, but they're not the same. Yeah. I, I get
1: shame mixed up all the time. My conflate, wife says that's not shame. That was a great word. Conflate. <laughs> My wife regularly says that that's not shame. And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't really know what shame is there. So Delilah, <laughs> you brought it up?
0: Well, I mean, but we use them interchangeably. Um, So guilt is how you feel about a behavior. You know, when you feel guilty, the narrative in your mind is I did something bad. Guilt is actually an important and adaptive emotion to feel. If we don't feel guilt, we don't feel remorse. And we're not likely to remedy the problem we may have caused, caused. So guilt is how you feel about a behavior. Shame is how you feel about yourself. When you feel guilty, you think I did something bad. When you feel shame, you think I am bad. So shame is basically the feeling of being less than and more specifically, it's the feeling of being less worthy than less worthy than somebody else of being treated with respect of being treated with the, you know, integrity.
1: Shame is like a deeper version of guilt in a way because it's a deeper version. You've personalized it. You've taken what was once an action you're putting it into character. Well, it can
0: be. I mean, this is the problem with guilt, you know, because guilt in our culture, which is so dysfunctional and so organized around shame. I mean, shame is so central to the way that we have all learned to relate and get our own sense of power. You know, we shame others all the time to prop ourselves up. We shame ourselves all the time when we feel like we haven't done something the way that we should have it's so um, it, it's so epidemic that as soon as people feel guilty, they often automatically turn it to shame. But shame is not adaptive like guilt. Shame is very problematic. When we feel shame, we typically, you know, do not feel a sense of agency or inspiration to rectify a problem. We wrap ourselves in the emotional armor we need to, to protect ourselves from further shame. You know, we withdraw or attack in self-defense. Shame is incredibly, incredibly um, disruptive to our sense of self. And most of us will do anything to avoid feeling shame. And there's, just been tons of studies on the problems um, the, the the problematic or the consequences of causing somebody else or ourselves to feel ashamed so when our process is not healthy it often ends up shaming because we treat we harm others dignity and we're communicating with them that they are not worthy that they are less worthy when we shame somebody else whether it's subtle or not so subtle, we significantly increase the chances that they shut down to anything else we have to say, feel defensive, lash back at us, or withdraw to get away from us. And so it's very important for us to be aware of what a shaming behavior, you know, or communication looks like so we can protect ourselves and we can also, you know, protect others from from this experience. I do believe that if, and, and research suggests this too, you know, if we as as, you know, globally, if the collective level of shame were not so high, we would be a lot less likely to treat each other the way that we do. You know, we've learned to manage our shame through one-upping people. We've learned to feel better about ourselves by putting others down and by wielding, you know, power over them, essentially. And this becomes, you know, this is this is a very problematic, problematic sh- cycle. The flip side of shame is contempt. When you feel contempt, that's a red flag that you've placed yourself in a position of moral superiority. Contempt is basically judgment plus um, prejudice, they say judgment plus anger, depending Ooh, on how you, and, and is, is
1: it built on shame? Like is contempt kind of like, the other side. It's the expressor of shame. Is I think I'm better than you. So I'm going to talk down to you and you're going to feel lower about yourself. Or if I feel shame, I'll kind of like maybe the action bit of it is to one up on him. You is can right? flip
0: into contempt, right? So yeah. both, both contempt and shame, they're two sides of a coin. So when you feel contempt, you've placed yourself in a position of superiority. You're looking down on somebody else. Um, or yourself. Like a lot of us shame ourselves. Um, And when you feel shame, somebody else has probably won up to you. And the thing about these emotions is that they only exist if we actually believe in a myth. They only exist if we believe in the widespread myth, what I refer to as the hierarchy of moral worth. If we believe in this idea that some individuals are more worthy of moral consideration or being treated with respect than others. If we don't believe in this, we don't feel shame and we don't feel guilt because, uh, or, and we don't feel contempt because we recognize that there is no hierarchy, that we all have the same intrinsic worth. As everyone else.
1: It's like you're articulating a spiritual practice in an incredibly um, formulaic manner, because like, in essence, like the the majority of spiritual practices are that we're all equal and that we treat others the way we want to be treated and that there's no kind of hierarchical aspect to it. And this is true. Your articulation of the word shame and content, it makes me go, wow, this intellectual approach towards spirituality is remarkable. It kind of makes it all connect and seem more, wow, cohesive. Yeah, to the modern brain
0: well thank you i mean we and we can come to this place of acceptance you know we can come to this place of mindfulness and compassion from you know in a lot from a lot of different directions i find coming to this conversation from a relational and a psychological place useful because it gives us the opportunity to use our minute to minute relational experiences as a training ground you know to really practice um you know creating healthier Healthier ways of relating. Um, so let me explain this a little bit. When you, when you wreck, we, we are constantly in relationship, right? So when you recognize these dynamics of contempt and shame and what can happen when we place, you know, when we believe in this hierarchy, we're just, we're much better able to address them in our minute to minute experience as we move through the world interacting with others and and interacting with ourselves. And when you think about the hierarchy of moral worth, I mean, it really is at the foundation of all forms of oppression and exploitation. You know, we could never harm another or others if we didn't believe that there was this hierarchy of that, that some individuals are not worthy of being treated with compassion or with respect.
1: So, so, so almost like, you know, the way current society, there really is a, a subtle hierarchy. You know, we have celebrities, we have political leaders, we have, you know, there, there is kind of almost, even though we do live in a... There, there are pay rate, right, pay they, rates because certain we, jobs are of more value than others. Yeah, so, so, so at the root of it, there kind of is quite an obvious hierarchy in our society, unless you're very spiritually evolved, that you kind of don't play at those levels. Yeah, but how, do, how it, do we move beyond this hierarchy or what are the tools or what's the, uh, I'm sorry again, this is a really broad. We're clutching broad. At straws here. What's <laughs> the solution. Yeah, yeah, how do we fix it again? <laughs>
0: In this case, um, understanding content is also really, really important, like understanding, you know, having some understanding of the, the way the hierarchy of moral worth gets manifested, it, because it's so easy for us to buy into it, right, so you for as an example. Let me back up and get a little bit more meta before I give you this example. So when you look at systems of oppression like patriarchy, right? like racism, like um, uh, uh, classism, um, carnism, you know, animal exploitation, all of these, all of these are expressions of the, the the same type of thinking. Each of the this each set of victims of these forms of oppression will always have unique experiences, of course. But the systems themselves are structurally similar and the mentality that drives these systems is the same. It's this non-relational mentality that's built on a hierarchy of moral worth, that certain groups are more worthy than other groups, if you think about it, and therefore certain individuals are more worthy than than individuals um, within these groups but this hierarchy of moral worth it gets played out in other ways as well or this belief it gets played out in other ways as well you can have for example somebody who is you know passionate about social justice and transforming all of these various isms and yet they may nevertheless berate people who don't agree with them and use the same kind of language toward these people you know online or wherever that they're trying to end being used in the world Because they've bought into this belief that, okay, because you're part of the problem, because you have harmed individuals or whatever, whatever, um, you do not deserve to be treated with respect. And so we keep recreating this problematic mentality, or we will keep recreating it if we don't recognize
1: it. So, like, uh, we see that all the time. Like, we've, uh, I I find this so hypocritic and I find it really amusing at this stage but it used to hurt us at the start back like we'd been eating a vegan diet for 20 years and our business was you know a plant-based business and you can't like veganism is an ideal there's no perfect within it and I find we get the most stick from other people who are vegans that they're so tough and so angry and it's like well at the root of this is meant to be compassion but it it seems like you know in reality we like we don't people don't it's not it's vegan people are the meanest to us than non-vegan people, even though. And
0: it's interesting that you say that, right? So there's, I mean, on one hand, this non-relational mentality that's organized around the hierarchy of moral worth, it's so ingrained in all of us. We've inherited it, right? So it just keeps, and it it does kind of, it acts like an entity that hijacks our psyche that like wants to stay alive. So we get more enlightened and we become more relational, but then all of a sudden there becomes some perfect excuse for why that person or (laughs) that group is now the enemy. It's like, we're just constantly trying to create the enemy. And this is why it's so important.
1: History, like war and like strife has been so like baked into our species that I wonder, is that like, it, does that just manifest when we, I don't know, maybe it's a, fa- uh, sorry, I'm clutching the straws here again. Back to you, Melanie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, but, it's, but it is a great question. You know, when we look at the history of humanity. It's a history of incredible, profound, profound violence um, and dysfunction. We can also look at the history of humanity and see a thread of it, you know, through this of, of conscious evolution. And so I think our, our choices you know, where do we want to be placing our focus? You know, when we have when we're in a privileged position, we can we can choose that. I don't know if we're going to make it. You know, we have a very important race ahead of us that we don't know.
1: Oh, we really do. It reminds me of we had a conversation with Bruce Parry, who was who lived with a lot of indigenous tribes. And he talked about how 14 of them were all the same. They were hierarchical and, you know, they were fascinating. But he lived with one tribe um, in the Panam tribe in Borneo, in Borneo where they were fully egalitarian. So they were fully, there was no hierarchical. It was fully egalitarian. He said it was like a different species. It was like Mm -hmm. different from every other human. And he said, like he looked back over the history of humans as best he could, talking with sociologists and what do you call people who study... Your man, I can't remember the other's name. Anyway, he talked about how the majority of human existence, like over 90%, we existed in this egalitarian, you know, approach towards living. Whereas in modern day society now in recent years, it's only a newfound phenomenon that this hierarchical approach of judging I'm higher than you, I'm up the pecking order, you're down the pecking order, etc, etc.
0: Well, it's certainly been exacerbated by, you know, social structures and economies that kind of create this sense of like, you know, this radical individualism that we experience today, for sure. Um, But uh, yeah, in answer to to what you were asking before, you know, when we look at this history that we have, that's just so brutal. I mean, how, how could we have any hope? And I think one thing we can look at is we can look at, the way that you know trauma affects us we all have we've inherited so much trauma you know we we've emerged from generation after generation of like wars and abuse and just even just the emotional violence like the day-to-day emotional violence that we all experience turn on your computer open your phone and we're just like explosions of emotional violence and people abusing each other and you know and sometimes this abuse is like not only tolerated but but celebrated right so And we also know that, you know, we we can people can and do develop a tremendous amount of resilience and emotional um, uh, wherewithal and maturity when they emerge from trauma. And so if we imagine that, you know, we recognize that the, the history of humanity is very, very short, we're very young as a species. Um, we do have the capacity, you know, with the right tools to learn and to grow. And the question is, you know, what can I, for me anyway, the question is, what what can I do today? How can I today help to be my better self and contribute to a better world for for everyone? And this is why, you know, the conversations that you guys have are are actually so important. And you cover such a a wide range of subjects. And it's also why I believe so strongly in the, the promise of relational literacy, because it's not just about How do we heal our relationships with the people in our families? How do we create better workplaces? But it's also, you know, how do we create better relationships with other animals? You know, how can we practice treating other animals? other animals, non-human animals with respect through our minute to minute choices and bringing relational literacy to that. The same thing for the environment, you know, and and even beyond this. And then when we look at vegans, you know, to your point, um, people who have really committed their lives to creating a better world for animals. And then you can see that there's also this thread of um, contempt that many vegans, many or some vegans, I should say, you know, can express and can express fairly loudly it can be helpful to recognize that number one, vegans are people, and people we're all fractured from living in this very dysfunctional world. And vegans are also people who have had to contend with a many of them anyway, myself included, a lot of trauma. You know, from from being it, when you are awake to the reality of what's happening to animals in the world who are raised and slaughtered um, for for human consumption. That takes a toll on you. It is the the extent of the suffering is so significant, and for most people, it's quite overwhelming. Um, Most people probably would be vegan if they were truly aware of it and had seen it um, the way that a lot of vegans had. So, I know that for many vegans, you know, living as a vegan and you know trying to live and speak your truth in a dominant animal eating culture. Especially when you've been subject to such traumatic material and you feel such an urgency to your message, this can really chip away at you um, and make it very, very challenging for you when you're trying to communicate and and relate to others because you've just for many vegans, they've just felt that their message has been you know shut down again and again and again, and they're carrying this burden and saying like, look, people look, you know, more farmed animals are slaughtered in in a single day than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. And so many of you are animal lovers, you care about animals, you're eating animals, you're telling me I'm crazy, because I care. It's hard to navigate these complicated um, dynamics that many vegans have to have to live with. So I I do understand, you know, how there can be such a such a charge sometimes. Wow.
1: I wonder, and that totally brings us on to talk about the the concept of carnism, because I guess I first became aware of your amazing work, uh, you know, this topic that you kind of coined carnism, the sense that we don't realize this invisible force, this kind of system of oppression, which continues the exploitation of animals. And I wonder if you could talk about this. And I love I love how you articulate why we pet dogs, why we. (laughs) <laughs> why we eat where eat pigs and, and wear, cows. wear cows and i think it's such a like i didn't do the very well saying it there simply <laughs> i would have preferred to say it better but it was uh i think it's beautiful
0: oh thank you yes the the book title well, we love dogs eat pigs and wear cows i mean it was it was through this my own personal journey that i i came to do my work on carnism or I came to identify i should say um carnism and you know i i grew up petting dogs you know i grew up with a dog who i loved Um, I grew up as a person who cared about animals, and I would never want to contribute to their suffering, especially when that suffering was so intensive and so completely unnecessary. Um, And, of course, I grew up eating animals, um, like most people. Um, And I, you know... I I end up becoming vegan uh, vegetarian because I ate a hamburger that was contaminated um, with bacteria. I wound up hospitalized. I was incredibly sick. And I just stopped eating animals because I was disgusted by meat at the time. It wasn't in my mind an ethical decision I had made. However, I then started learning how to cook for myself as a vegetarian. This was back in the 80s um, as a vegetarian. And this, of course, led me to information about animal agriculture. And shortly after that, I became vegan. Um, I was just shocked and horrified at what I was learning about what was happening to the animals, the environment, you know, my body and so on. But what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. These were my friends, my family members. They were rational, compassionate people. And they would just say, like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. Or they'd call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. And this wall would just go up of defensiveness. And this was what made me really curious. And I was asking myself, how can compassionate people, rational people, I'm including myself, I had eaten meat all my life, you know, how how is it that we just stop thinking and feeling? When it comes to eating animals, and that was what led me to identify what I called carnism, which is a non-relational system. It's the invisible belief system or ideology that conditions us to eat certain animals. It carnism basically, you know, makes it makes it so that we eat certain animals without realizing um, the inconsistency in our values and our behaviors. So, for example. If you imagine, I know you guys are vegan, but let's just say, imagine that you're not vegan and you're, you bite, you're biting into a juicy hamburger and your dining companion turns to you and says that hamburger is not actually made of beef. That's made from a golden retriever. So, right. Chances are your experience would have dramatically changed, even though nothing about the meat itself actually changed. Oh my God. Right. And so your behavior changes. So cardism conditions us to disconnect from our authentic thoughts and feelings when it comes to those animals we've classified as edible. And this is true all around the world. In mediated cultures around the world, people learn to classify a handful of animals as edible. All the rest are inedible and often disgusting and even offensive to consume. And even though the type of species consumed changes from culture to culture, members of all cultures tend to find their own choices to be rational and the choices of other cultures to be irrational and disgusting and offensive. So what carnism does is it distorts our perceptions and disconnects us from our natural empathy from those animals we've learned to think of as edible so that we see their flesh and we don't see it for what it is. We just see it as food and we don't feel disgusted. We feel appetized. So we eat it rather than throw it in the trash. Or stand out in the street corner with a sign protesting the fact that they were slaughtered
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. my, my, my you partner, a story my yeah. partner I was telling her I was telling her that we were chatting to you this afternoon and we were going for a walk and she's she's totally into cats like we have two cats, and she's kind of like you know, she's a cat mama and she was telling me about her friend who works out in China and she was saying her friend has a pet cat and she was moving back to Sweden and uh, she was trying to find someone to foster the cat. And she was, you know, she spent weeks trying to find people and couldn't find anyone. And her friend just said, well, why don't you just eat it? And she was totally out. She was like, eat my cat. Like, what are you? You mad? But this was common in China. And she ended up like paying $2,000 to get her cat shipped to Sweden where she was going home, like rather than Eating it, which someone in China might have done, you know.
0: Right. And that, but that's a perfect example, right? But in China, they yeah. wouldn't have eaten, you know, if that cat had been a pet, for example. I mean, people in the West eat pigs, but not pigs that are pets, not pigs who have names. For instance, so, so this what's interesting about carnism is that it is, as I said, it's a non-relational system. It's structured the same way that these other non-relational systems are structured, and it conditions us to interact. And, and when with you say when donors. you say that
1: when you say that mm-hmm. word non-relational, so for anyone that yeah. missed or didn't quite get the first bit, that's to do with integrity and dignity, and having integrity and honoring dignity, and therefore you've got connection and compassion and empathy, isn't that right? That's exactly right. We yeah.
0: practice and when we when we engage in a way that's relational. We practice integrity and honor dignity, and this leads to a sense of connection and and security. Um, and non relational systems are systems that are organized in a way to condition us to violate this formula, to violate our integrity and harm dignity. Right? So people, good people, you know, can participate in harmful practices. It doesn't make them bad people. And this is one of the reasons it's so important to recognize carnism. Um, maybe particularly for vegans, because for many vegans, they think, oh my God, what's wrong with you? You eat animals. You're this you know, horrible, evil person, this hypocrite. When we recognize that we've been deeply conditioned by the system to think and feel and act in certain ways, we can, we can appreciate that, you know, people are part of a system and it's not that they're individually bad people. It's that they've been conditioned to think and act a certain way. And for some people, it's much harder than it is for others to step outside of the system.
1: And yes. this system you're referring to is where we don't see animals being slaughtered. We don't typically, they're called lamb as a, or they're called beef as opposed to cow or et cetera. So there's this kind of disconnect. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So we tend to just see them as, and it's a systemic system of oppression, as you said. So it's, we're not aware of it. And I see it, I see it's so easy to see it, you know, it really is that, um,
0: Totally. And the system is, it becomes, carnism becomes internalized. When you're born into a system this, you know, broad, it, be, it becomes internalized and it's organized around these psychological defense mechanisms that cause people, you know, to feel defensive about, against any information that would get them out of the carnistic box, right? So a lot of people, all they have to do is meet a vegan and they suddenly feel defensive against anything the vegan says,
1: Yeah, it's a bit like someone who like uh, if you don't drink alcohol and you're with lots of people, (laughs) at least in Ireland, certainly in Ireland, (laughs) we noticed we we ended up giving up alcohol for a month and that ended up being 20 years and we haven't really, you know, drank. But then when you go out with people, certainly in the early days, they certainly felt very judged, even though there might not have been any judgment. And I think that can often be the same with, you know, as you're saying, if you're vegan and other people might feel judged.
0: Well, definitely. And and carnism is, you know, in in my book and why we love dogs, eat pigs and wear cows. I I write about exactly the way that it does distort perceptions, you know, to help people identify these distortions because they lose a lot of power over you when you can see them for what they are. Um, You know, so, for example, carnism conditions us to see farmed animals as abstractions, as lacking any individuality or personality of their own. So or we consciousness, learn to believe probably that, that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same.
1: Yeah, like lack of consciousness. And oh, I, had a, I had a good question there. I thought it was really good, but maybe it's gone. You now. interrupted Melanie as well. Sorry, sorry for being so rude. Okay.
0: Sorry. It'll probably come back to you just in an inop- inopportune time. Um, which is the way it happens to me. It's like there and gone. And then in the shower later on, oh. And
1: then you catch it. it.
0: (laughs) Right. But, uh, you know, when, when, when you recognize carnism for what it is, I think, number one, we're less influenced by it. Number two, we can also recognize that, like, we can be You know, people can help transform the system without having to be fully vegan themselves. For a lot of people, they're simply not willing or able or ready to become fully vegan, but that doesn't mean that they can't be a part of the transformation, a part of the process. Like vegans often assume either you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. And it's very, this kind of like all or nothing thinking. But when we invite people in to be vegan allies, You know, to to use a vegan ally as somebody who's not vegan yet, but who uses their influence to help transform carnism, then we invite, you know, we open up, uh, you know, 98% of the population to support a cause that really needs all the help it can get.
1: Yeah, because everyone, I think most people are compassionate to animals and really love animals and care for animals. And like one thing which, like, as we said, we've been we've been in this camp for a long time, like the vegan camp. And it's only been in the last couple of years that I've realized the number of animals killed a year is something like six billion, like it's or 10 billion or something ridiculous that it's more animals are killed per year than there are humans on the planet which kind of makes you go, wow! It's at that scale of animal agriculture that most of us aren't aware of. Like you really, you know.
0: Well, we're yeah, we're not aware of the the content, like what's actually happening, but we're also not aware of the process, which is the way our brains have been conditioned to cause us to feel that it's appropriate to be eating certain animals. Um, You know, and you're absolutely right. Most people really do care. I've been on, you know, I've been to 50 countries now and six continents talking about this issue and haven't found any exceptions. People care. They care about animals and they care about their impact on animals. And most people would never willingly support such harm toward animals. And yet they eat them on a regular basis and just have that disconnect so, you know, recognizing making the invisible visible is very important. One of the ways carnism maintains itself is by remaining invisible. So, you know, it, it's so carnism is so widespread that, you know, it, it's basically shapes the structure of society in many ways. Law, it shapes norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, et cetera. It's become institutionalized. So when people study nutrition, for instance, they actually study carnistic nutrition they don't recognize this because they don't see the bias that's built right into the system. Instead, they meet a vegan and think, oh my God, you're biased.
1: Yeah, it's so true. It really is. Where do you get your nutrition? You're vegan. Like where do you get it? Like you're you're from a different planet, Shirley, you know. So yeah, I really, I totally, totally get that. Yeah. So so Melanie, just to try to wrap it up in kind of a positive way, because everything you said is is amazing it really my mind is. feels lit I've enjoyed this conversation immensely and just to try to wrap it up in, in kind of a positive kind of way just like in terms of to improve our communications even this is for me I'm recapping it for a personal level so <laughs> all good communication starts with integrity and that lovely word that I'm struggling to remember dignity dignity, dignity. integrity dignity. meaning kind of dignity meaning everyone is worthwhile everyone is no there's one is no above hierarchy. each other there's no hierarchy integrity that sense of spine and morality in that sense of but not perfect not perfectioning in our morality that we are flawed humans doing our best yes and then carnism in essence to kind of move beyond carnism it starts with awareness because at the moment it's invisible and as soon as we become aware and bring the invisible into the visible suddenly there's room for transformation and it is shifting it is hugely shifting totally you know like it
0: is shifting yeah I mean and that's the beauty of this is that like again with relational literacy we can apply it everywhere in our lives and just committing you know to be i always suggest to people don't feel like you have to just go vegan to be a part of the solution you can just try to be as vegan as possible you know learn how do your best to bring integrity into the choices that you make that impact others and yourself when you're relating and this includes other animals right so so when you sit down to a meal how vegan can i make this meal um, and just if you can just keep coming back to that. And somebody once asked me, you know, Melanie, where do you draw your line around your, your circle of compassion? Um, because I'm vegan and, you know, I don't wear leather and they're saying, oh, my God, where does it end? And I said, it's, it's not where I draw my line that matters to me. It's how I relate to my, my line. That's what matters. And that's what I would say to, to listeners. This is what I'm talking about, about not being perfection perfectionistic. We, we just do our best that if you could do your best to bring compassion into your life and keep coming back to co- commit to building relational literacy, you can do it if you want to. And every little step will probably help improve your life in a very appreciable way, because you will have tools that you can use to navigate the most important experience of your of your life, which is your relational experiences and of course your relationship with yourself. And it, it can be done. And in doing that, you're automatically contributing to a better world for everyone.
1: Sheesh, I love absolutely that absolutely brilliant. Like really like I feel like it's spirituality is so baked into it but we're going at it with a different lens like it really is. It's like how to be a better human that's more compassionate and more empathetic and more caring generally and less oppressive and less kind of dogmatic and less shame and less contempt and all these various things and really trying to be a better version of ourselves. You know, and even if even if anyone's listening is not like if the vegan thing if they're not really into that yet, like I saw it last the last couple of years with racism and the whole massive rise in this, and it's only through those things that I've realised how systemic racism is, and as a white male, just how how racism has been part of our culture, and I've only become aware how even in myself and how I've reacted, it's been baked into me whether I wanted it or not. So I think it's the same. That's really well
0: said. And it's a really important point you make, which is that process matters, as we were saying, a lot. Um, And all of these isms are organized around the same kind of thought process, the hierarchy of moral worth, the same types of beliefs. And in content also matters like because racism is so baked in because carnism is so baked in patriarchy is so baked in we really do have to learn about how these systems what are the specific beliefs these systems instill in us what are these specific sense of privilege these systems instill in us because if we don't we're not gonna be able to free our minds from them because they're just gonna seem so normal. It's just gonna seem, you know, our, our norm is a norm that's, that's been conditioned. So it's very much about, you know, building relational literacy and part of that is being committed to becoming aware, becoming aware of the systems that we are a part of and how those systems have indoctrinated us so that we can free our minds and our hearts from them and live more authentic and freely chosen lives.
1: Beautiful. so beautifully said thank you melanie so you're amazing beautifully melanie for anyone thank listening you. how can they find out more and learn more about um your, your wonderful work and your work
0: yeah thank you they can come and visit carnism.org and they can also visit my website melaniejoy.org they both have lots of information about everything we've talked about on there
1: you're amazing you really are like i feel wow Brilliant. Thank
0: you guys. You're such you're so easy to talk to and such a pleasure and I love what you do and I've been wanting to have a conversation with you for so long because I so appreciate your positive focus and your broad focus on the world and the individual and health and all of these things that we know are very interconnected but are often separated, you know, rarely rarely do you find a podcast that's so encompassing, but strings these things together. Strings these things together in a way that helps them make sense. So this has been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Melanie. Thank Thank you, thanks Melanie. so much. Really appreciate. it And when you come to Ireland, please come hang out. Come swim. Come hang out. Yes, come I'll have. Get, let's, let's, let's come and have vegan hour. lunch. <laughs> Talk about. It. <laughs> 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 Love it. Brilliant. Brilliant. But well, thanks a million. Thanks so much Thank for taking so the time. You're thanks, Melanie. Cheers. Bye bye. That was fabulous. I absolutely adored it. Just to recap: integrity, dignity. Equals good connection and and safety and security. Yeah, Yeah, it was just what a great conversation. What an elegant, eloquent dignified lady. Glorious and ultimately for me it kind of came down to spirituality about how each of us need to become more aware of how we communicate and how we kind of feed systems of oppression and how we can become more compassionate towards ourselves and ultimately towards others. So, And it was a really nice reminder that communication is a skill it's something that we can all conscientiously improve and by improving that improves every aspect of our life. and, And this is a little tip for me so it might be relevant to you and it may be relevant to Stephen is we have two ears and one mouth so I gonna become better at listening. Okay, with that. With okay. That, anyway, I'm gonna be quiet. Thank next. you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, please, as we often say, please share it in social media or any friends or subscribe to it on Spotify or, or iTunes. give it a five star rating because it really helps um, get more people to listen to it. Anyway, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And Thanks to Shoni and to Sarah Shawnee Cahill for producing, for uh, editing and shooting and filming, and to Sarah Fawcett for the being Queen the of the Media production. Producer. So, thank you. Wishing you a wonderful day. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. bye 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 bye